Welcome to Zeitgeist. A fair bit of what we all learn throughout our years as young people is that shit sucks. We're here to discuss how this feels, how we're getting more disillusioned yet still idealist about things getting better. So if you're expecting solutions, we can't promise anything but group crying, honesty, and hopefully some insight from our guests. Here at Zeitgeist, we ask three questions. What is the world? What could it be? And if it can't get better, how do we cope with that? Kia ora and welcome back to episode two of Zeitgeist. This time we're going to be talking about consumer culture and we've got a really awesome guest on with us. Kate, would you like to introduce our guest? Absolutely. So we have the lovely Alicia today and um, she is the founder of Nisa, which is a sustainable underwear brand. And I believe it was founded in 2017. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. awesome. And Alicia mm-hmm. also has a background in law. And so, yeah, we've got her on today to talk about how Nisa works and her thoughts on consumer culture and all of that. Did you want to give us a little bit more insight about Nisa and what it does? Yeah, sure. I started Nisa in 2017. So Nisa is an ethical underwear label that employs women from refugee and migrant backgrounds in Wellington and actually our workshops just around the corner. Cool. But yeah, do you want to say a little bit more about kind of just a brief background about you? Yeah, sure thing. So I'll start ages ago. So at the moment I, I'm 30, soon to be 31 in a few weeks actually. Exciting. So I studied down in Otago, so not here at Vic. And then midway through my studies, I took off to Germany to chase a boyfriend, of course. <laughs> and, it's always a boy. It's always yeah. a boy. <laughs> and, um, and through that experience, I didn't speak any German. So I was like, oh, it'll be fine. And then I arrived there. Uh, I really struggled to find work. I felt so isolated. And I guess all my support systems were not there. And at the same time, I started hearing some pretty disturbing things being said about refugees and asylum seekers in Germany Uh, at that point there was like a big influx from the Middle East and there was this really political issue that got really polarized and quite hateful so when I came back to New Zealand I finished off my law degree and I kind of you know I was thinking reflecting on that time and then I saw the picture in the paper of Alan Kurdi, who was that small boy who washed up on the beach in Turkey you guys might have been maybe a bit too young to remember that I remember that yeah, it was his like his small body and his little face in the sand. And I thought, you know what, I want New Zealand to be different. I want us to be a welcoming place for people to come to. So from that, I got involved with the Red Cross, with the Refugee Resettlement Program. That was an amazing experience. But yeah, the thing that was really lacking was jobs and job opportunities. And the easiest way to do that is to set up a business. So here I am four years later. Nisa's been going for that long. And we make organic cotton briefs, bralettes, swimwear, activewear, socks, all the good things. Mm. Oh, awesome. Mm. And it's employing people from refugee backgrounds and migrant backgrounds. So, yeah, we all work together in our Wellington workshop just down the road from here. So it's all very local. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Amazing. The first thing we can do is talk about what you perceive to be like consumer culture. What's your experience been as a business owner and Mm. looking out at consumers? What do you perceive consumer culture to be and some background Mm. around that? (laughs) I see two parallel trends. So they both kind of come within consumer culture, but Mm. one is what I'd call like fast fashion, which is, you know, the desire for more and cheaper. But within consumer culture, there's also a little bit of counterculture, which is people believing in conscious consumption conscious consumption is not anti-consumer in fact it's like the opposite of that it's saying we can make change through the way that we spend but both of those trends I guess are shaping our worlds in, in different ways whenever people talk about conscious consumption and how they feel like there's this groundswell around it it's so easy to say that, but we're kind of being eclipsed by this larger trend. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's it's really easy if you've got like quite liberal friends to pat yourself on the back. But you have to look at the bigger picture and see where the market's going in general. And this kind of reminds me actually of the old double cab ute debate, which is that there's like this growing market for EVs or electric vehicles, but there's the same growth rate in the double cab ute market. So, you know, you just have to imagine that the gains made in one area of life are just totally offset yeah. by actions in the other 
other spheres. So yeah, you have to look at the big picture and not be too self-congratulatory. Yeah, yeah definitely. So it must be very hard because working in that sort of conscious trend, it feels like one step forward and then some other people making many steps backward. Yeah. And then if we're asking for system change where say everyone mm. was more conscious, mm. then it almost feels like it's easy to get swept up in a gloss or like a yeah. guilt alleviation totally. thing when you're surrounded by so many people who can afford conscious yeah. consumption and yeah. also people, yeah, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> it is really difficult. Yeah, I was just mm. going to say as well with that, talking about those two different mm. trends. So, so both of those trends affect people in different ways, you know, mm. like we all know about fast fashion and how that affects, you know, developing nations mm. and how people exploit the labour of mm. people in other countries, normally people of mm. colour, mm. for the benefit of the Western world. Mm. And then also there's that whole like, conscious consumption culture, which sometimes when people partake in that, particularly white people, they look at other people and say, oh, you're not doing that, you're not mm. doing enough. And it's like, well, mm. actually, it's a privilege to kind of partake in that conscious culture. So, totally. yeah, you get like a real... You know, like everything we do has an effect on everything else, which is... Yeah. yeah. We sort of live in a bubble mm. and it's easy to get swept up in alleviating our guilt and not mm. actually looking beyond to see what's going on in the global south and in the peripheral countries mm. where they're, they're manufacturing goods for us, mm. but they're not keeping that profit because mm. trickle-down effect obviously doesn't work. Mm. And really, we're still the people who benefit, mm. like... Our corporations are the ones who benefit mm. from this very exploitive consumer culture. Mm. One thing I will say, though, is that I think one thing that makes me sad is that people see sewing machines and they see exploitation. Mm. There's nothing wrong with manufacturing. Manufacturing is like the fiber of what we live and breathe every day. Absolutely. It's um, it's beautiful. Mm. And the sad thing is that the conditions under which it's done, but it doesn't need to be that way. But I find manufacturing itself is just the coolest thing. Like, I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, yeah. not quite the idea. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, th- I think those images have kind of been spliced together in people's minds. And so in our workshop, anyone can come into our shop to see everyone working because our workshop and shop are in a combined space on Willis Street. And what we're trying to do is kind of break down some of those associations and be like, actually sewing is something that people love it's a huge passion we're so excited about it and sharing the joy of creation I guess people are used to seeing like kind of political campaigns that really politicize certain images and it doesn't have to be that way you Mm -hmm. know I mean you can't escape it's the inevitable Mm. reality that Mm. we all need clothing yeah you know it is the it is the social norm that we have to cover ourselves (laughs) and be warm (laughs) and so we need you know like manufacturing as much as it is Mm. it's also a creation as well it's also a necessity you know we do need Mm. some kind of that manufacturing so it's really awesome that you know you've opened that up to be seen as something more than what politics might show us Yeah, yeah totally we're just so proud of what we do as well. So we love people coming in and seeing us at work and seeing the amount of technical sophistication involved. People think of their wee sewing machine at home, but really like every industrial sewing machine can only do one thing. To make a pair of underwear, there's maybe eight machines involved. To make a bra, like so many more. So it's showing people that technical aspect is also real fun. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome. Do you want to talk a bit more about Nisa's ethos and you know mm. how you incorporated people with refugee backgrounds and yeah, yeah, yeah and all that kind of awesome stuff so we started with a crowdfunding campaign in 2017 I already had my first employees by that time and then the crowdfunding campaign let us employ a production manager who actually taught the employees what to do because I had no idea <laughs> I was like I am not a professional machinist I am not don't have any background in fashion design or fashion or anything like that so I was just so glad that someone actually knew what they were doing and it wasn't just me um, <laughs> and so Yeah, that was kind of the beginning and we work really closely with Red Cross Pathways to Employment team because Red Cross oversee most of the resettlement work that happens in New Zealand and they have special employment teams that help people into work so we team up with them and that's how we find people with awesome sewing skills and then sometimes also we find people through our employees' family members. We've actually got an auntie and a niece working together Uh, so they are just so, so cool. So, yeah, we find people in lots of different ways. Yeah, most of our staff are from refugee backgrounds, two are from migrant backgrounds, and then we've got a few Aotearoa-born people in there as well. So it's a real mix. And, yeah, at the moment we're a team of 12. 
What sort of countries do you find that your employees come from? Uh, so they're largely the countries that New Zealand accepts refugees from. So um, people in New Zealand can feel quite smug because our refugee quota is comparable to other countries. So we're like, oh, we're doing this great job. But basically the people that come into New Zealand as former refugees have already received visas allowing them to come. So Immigration New Zealand goes to camps, sorts out documents, works with the UNHDR and takes people who have been formally certified as refugees into New Zealand. It's because it's so hard to come here by boat. You can't just walk to New Zealand. No. You know, we have, we have like really closed borders, whereas most of the other countries around the world, most of the people that arrive at their borders claiming refugee status, don't have any documentation. And I can't remember the special term for it, but basically that's outside of a quota program and those numbers are just very, very large and we don't have to deal with any of that. So we can like pat ourselves on the back because we're like, oh, we've got this lovely quota, but actually we accept a small percentage of the refugees that someone like Germany would accept. And it's because mm-hmm. of the differences with our borders. And so we, as I was mentioning, we... The refugees that are in New Zealand or former refugees are from countries that New Zealand has actually gone out and like accepted refugees from. Uh, so it's largely countries in the Middle East. We've got Syria, you know, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Colombia. A number of the former refugees in New Zealand are from Colombia and other South American countries. Myanmar is a yeah a really diverse bag, but yeah, they're all particular countries that mm. we are working with to help resettle refugees. Yeah. It's mm. like the law privileges certain um, statuses of refugees over others. And it's almost yeah. like, it sounds like we're not wanting to really help those who need it the most, in a way. I Obviously, we just need to increase our quota. So Murdoch Stevens, a number of other activists really pushed for many years and finally they got a doubling of the refugee quota. But I think it would be awesome if we increase that even further. Mm. And a lot of my staff really want their families to join them. Uh, So family reunification is also a big, important thing that a lot of our staff are really passionate about because part of their families are overseas and aren't able to come to New Zealand because they can't access a visa. So, yeah, that's... Mm. Mm. (laughs) I feel like I've given you quite a scrambled definition of what's going on. No, no, that's that's good. Scrambled in nature. So I think that was... I I got what you meant. Mm. (laughs) I was going to ask about that as well. Do you see Nisa being a company that you want to grow and therefore be able to employ more people from yeah. refugee backgrounds? Like, like, I think we probably need to be double or triple our size to really be able to stand the test of time. Because a very small business, you're really vulnerable to big things happening to you, like COVID mm. or you know some other kind of shock. And as we grow, not only are we able to offer more and more jobs to people who need that first chance in mm. New Zealand, but we're also more likely to just stand the test of time. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely. And in that way, when you can get to grow your business, Mm. um, you get to grow the amount of people who are choosing to purchase other than the fast fashion trend. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I hope that we, um, I think we also, you know, change or at least have a small impact on our customers' lives. Occasionally we get letters and cards from our customers and it's just the sweetest thing ever. And it's them talking about how much they love the products and how good they make them feel. And it's that kind of impact that really motivates my staff because everyone wants to feel like the thing that they're making, their job is really important and it's helping other people. Mm. Um, So it's this real exchange between the community and our small team, you know. People want to support us, but we want to support them as well. Mm. Yeah, because... I think with the sort of globalised mainstream consumer culture that we have, it's very individualised and Mm. you don't see who's made your clothing. You don't know anything about the sourcing. So in the end, the only thing the consumer cares about in that sort of system is the cheapest, Mm. like newest item they can have, what they care about, that sort of thing. But when you know who's making them and like it feels like a community thing, then you feel you actually feel united through that sort of Mm. transaction rather than made individuals. I guess our whole reason for being is really around community building and the idea that we're all in this together and we all want to be part of a community that's welcoming and that creates opportunities for people. And that's not about former refugees, that's not about migrants, that's not about people who are born in Aotearoa, that's just a general thing that I think most people would believe in. Mm, absolutely. Um, I mean, we talk a lot here about like collectivism mm, and about mm. coming together as a group and as mm. a people to mm. make the change because often it's so hard to do it on your own. Mm. I mean, you couldn't have started a business without employees and yeah. we can't, no one can, 
you know, put a bill through Parliament without the support of people and it comes back Mm. to that community over and over again. So when you take the community out of consumerism, Mm. you're left with just the transaction itself. Mm. And so it's putting the community back into that transaction, Mm. which is why we wanted to have you on here specifically Mm. because it's a really awesome thing that you guys are doing. Yeah, Mm. yeah. It's definitely a team effort though. That's one I don't sew the garments, thank God. (laughs) They would not be wearable if I did. The people who actually do the really awesome stuff aren't here with me today, Mm -hmm. but they're in the workshop and you can come around and say hi. We absolutely will. Just for the interest of our listeners as well, where are you on Willis Street? So we're at 99 Willis Street and we're on the first floor and that's right next to Sushi B on Willis Street if you guys are sushi fans. Oh, absolutely. Or like near the Majestic (laughs) Centre. Cool, we'll come say hi. I've actually been before. Yeah. I went in to have a look once with a friend. Oh, very cool. It was very cool. Yeah. Love the plants and everything. (laughs) (laughs) We've got this monstrously large changing room as well, which is really fun because I think, you know, when you go into a shop, usually you've got those cubicles where the curtains don't close properly and you're like, oh, Gosh, people can see me, and then you just you're like, oh god, where do I put my bags? And it's the lighting, like, yeah. the lighting's always really awful, and you put yeah. the clothes on, oh, and you're like, oh, yeah. it doesn't look good, and then yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a lot going on in the workshop. I just had a question mm. as well about mm. the actual products you mm. make, the bras mm. and the briefs mm. and the active and swimwear and all mm. that. Can you tell us a bit about? the products themselves yeah. and like what they're made of and like where you source your materials from and that supplier inside info. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll start with our briefs and bras. We use organic cotton for that. So that's like our main material and that is knitted in a mill in Melbourne. A lot of people ask us why we don't source cotton from New Zealand, but there are actually no mills in New Zealand anymore. So that's not even a possibility. They're oh, all wow. gone. We get it from a company that knits it in Melbourne and I am... Um, visited the mill a few years ago it was so cool it was huge if you imagine the warehouse and then times that by three imagine these huge machines in this huge space you know I just think that's the coolest thing in the world (laughs) most other people be like oh what's going on (laughs) just about an hour's drive out from Melbourne and then our elastics we source from a few different places because we have so many different types of elastics. Like if you imagine they kind of go on bra straps, then under the bust, and then on the leg, there's like a million and one different kinds. So we get that from Portugal, and then we have another supplier in Hong Kong. And then our swimwear is made from regenerated nylon, so we release a swimwear range every summer. And it's always funny because that's one of the only things that we really have to decide before time what we think is going to sell and what we think is not going to sell. Because most of the other stuff is just year round. You don't have to discount it. It's just available forever. Mm. And then if it sells really well, you make more. And if it sells less, you just make less of it. But you're not having to like decide for once and for all how much you're going to make of each thing. Whereas swim is such a punt. You're like, oh God, I, I think people buy this many units. Stuff that people love usually sells out within two days. Wow. I know. So like, Crazy. it's amazing. It's like this hive mind that's like, that's <laughs> the cool thing. And everyone's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so hard to actually pick what those things will be. Yeah. And so, yeah, swimwear is a bit different, but we make that from a regenerated nylon fabric. So that's fishing nets kind of waste. And that's knitted in Italy. Then we've got activewear fabric. It's also made from a regenerated nylon. And we're going to launch our activewear range in a few months. And it's made from, um, this gets quite technical, but from a peached fabric. And what that means is that they take a flat fabric and they run rollers over it. It creates this fluffy surface. (laughs) And so it feels like it's a synthetic fibre. Obviously it's activewear, but it feels like cotton. It's like this soft, like amazing delicious thing so we're really excited about that That's so it's awesome. been two and a half years in the making so we've got to sell some active wear yeah, yeah. <laughs> have to make that yeah. worthwhile last bit of the plan <laughs> yeah, yeah. sell the thing yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah that's our product range that's um, awesome yeah our aim is to be the first pair of underwear that you reach for in the drawer. You know how you have the, all the, the ones that put a call special occasion underwear that's at the back that you never wear. And you've uh, always got the matching set. Yes. Like, yeah. And yeah. you're like, yeah, that's once a year maybe. <laughs> and then you've got all the stuff that you wear every day. And then of mm. that, you've got your favorite pair, which is, you know, you do your washing, you pull it out and you're like, this is the one. And you're so, straight from the dryer. Yes. It's still warm. Totally. Yeah. So we, our aim is to be that pair of underwear. So yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm. I must say I have a pair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a friend got me them for my birthday oh, um, last lovely. year. But it's the sort of pink and darker red yeah, yeah. color. Nice. It's so comfy. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. great to hear. Yeah. 
I found it interesting earlier. You mm. sort of talked about the hive mind mm. when it comes to the summer swimwear. Yeah. Do you think in consumer culture there's a lot of jumping on trend to create like a sense of belonging or like a lot of people find identity in how they buy? Yeah. And, like, I don't think that's as relevant for the swimwear because no one would know everyone else had bought it. It's just this, there's obviously colours or certain things that I just subconsciously floating through the ether and if you can get that color people are just like oh you know i don't even know what it is it's um those colors and those textures and those shapes will change through time and i guess the job of a designer is really to try and capture that Mm, um and try to i guess capitalize on that yeah it's an interesting i don't really i don't really understand it it feels almost like a dark art to me but yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, we've talked. Yeah. We talked quite a lot about this actually, yeah. about how there's certain things that are trendy, and about mm. how people, like just said, get mm. belonging from feeling like they're partaking the trend, but mm. that the people who are setting those trends mm. are people who are marketing us mm. these virtues mm. of belonging and mm. you know feeling nice about yourself, and they're mm. marketing that to us through product, and mm. it's like really amazing. And like you said, like kind of a dark art, you yeah. know, but it's also a little bit scary in that, you know, we're constantly being subconsciously tweaked by mm. these big conglomerate corporations mm. who are deciding what's on trend and then these like, you know, fashion houses and fashion designers and that kind of thing. And mm. about how just how pervasive that mm. is in our lives. Everything we see is conditioning us towards something or away from something. Mm. And, you know, our even our emotions are kind of manipulated by mm. that market as well, you know. I don't think that there's a master plan. That's the first oh, no. thing I'll say. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist at all. I just mean, but like, I, yeah, yeah. I think I agree with you. I, but a lot of people put a lot of thought into how they want to sell something and put a lot of effort into positioning it in just the right way and engaging in certain feelings. And I guess I don't see anything wrong with that inherently because we try to do that as well. Mm. I think the part of it that's sad is the products that they're selling are causing harm. And also that people capitalize on styles of marketing that make people feel inadequate. Mm. So I think appealing to people's emotions is just that community you were talking about, you know, trying to bring us together. But that's not to say that everything you see in fashion marketing or in beauty marketing is right. You know, a lot of it is quite questionable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's about that line between, say, like art Mm. and Mm trying to capture emotions mm. and then really utilizing that in a way that sucks the like, soul out of it mm. and you're just using it to get lots and lots of profit because mm. obviously some corporations will mm. use advertising and appeal mm. to uh, fulfill a profit motive mm. but you're trying to fulfill like a motive of community yeah. and yeah. Um, providing jobs for people from refugee backgrounds and yeah. migrant backgrounds yeah, yeah. kind of comes down to your motivations mm. you've talked yeah. about your motivations mm. and they're incredible you know that mm. whole building community and mm. trying to see manufacturing as a creative art which is awesome and mm. it's just wish that everybody had the same kind yeah. of intentions yeah. as nisa did yeah it's about the social responsibility of businesses sometimes a lot of businesses that people might see as quote unquote evil i think do have Every business provides good in the community in some way. I think we just need to expect more. Like every business is employing people. Every business has changed someone's life somewhere, even at the... But what I like to think about, people talk about social enterprise, but I think that's kind of a sad term because every business should be a social enterprise. And that doesn't mean that every business would be like us, like entirely purpose-focused, but every business should have the well-being of their community at their core, mm. even if it doesn't look like us, even if it doesn't mean they're going out and saying, we're a social enterprise, support us. It's really about expecting more of every business. And also, I think the flip side of that is businesses that do try to break out and do things better also not hounding like what I've noticed is that when businesses try to break out and do a little bit better people just go after them because as soon as people state their values or try and be better they're held up to such a high standard whereas Mm -hmm. businesses that don't say anything that are just like yes we're profit grubbing blah you know Mm -hmm. like they're just allowed to do terrible things because everyone's like well we knew that you were like that (laughs) you know it's just it shouldn't be like that we should all be encouraging people to step up and have these values and really try and bit by bit 
be better and do better because none of us are perfect. And I guess trying to like really support everyone and every business along that journey because everyone will make missteps, I think. Mm. Mm. I mean, you've basically directed, because I feel like we've (sighs) talked about you know, what we see consumer culture to Mm. be and like what Nice is doing to combat Mm. that and trying to put a new and more desirable spin Mm. on what fashion can be. Mm. You've segued beautifully Mm. into like what it can be, you know, like what the alternatives Mm. are. Mm. And so talking about holding companies and labels to their values and Mm. holding them accountable for their actions and that kind of thing without, obviously, as you said, hounding (laughs) companies that are trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I guess the question that we want to ask you then is mm. what would you see as an alternative mm. to how would you see the, the whole fashion industry taking on board what Nice is trying to do? Oh, I, I couldn't really answer that because the industry as a whole is so different from us. Hardly anyone is manufacturing in New Zealand anymore. And yeah, I couldn't even answer that really in terms of the fashion industry, but I think I could answer that for businesses more broadly and I think it's about trying to give people a chance through employment and that can look like every business employs people unless you're like you know a sole trader or just a out on your own um most businesses employ people and really using that as a opportunity to create change and more than that change people's lives yeah and Mm. we've had nothing but successes doing that ourselves so all we can ask is that hopefully other businesses will be inspired by our example and maybe next time we'll consider someone who maybe has come from overseas doesn't have any local references someone who maybe doesn't have you know the degree from the fancy university or someone who doesn't come from quote unquote the same background as everyone else in the workforce you know it's about being different and giving people chances and paying Mm. everybody a fair wage yeah (laughs) yeah from the employer's perspective Mm. that seems like a perspective that's more about providing opportunity rather Mm. than how can I use you as human capital yeah Yeah. totally yeah I would say when you've got such mega Mm. corporations people at the top Mm. probably don't even know half of the people at the bottom Mm. and so that's why they can so easily have this sort of human capital outlook yeah if if things were more localized then people be more empathetic and see how everyone else is also just human and they need a chance as well I'd like to think so I think you know, there's definitely a place for a big business, but there is something very lovely about knowing all of your team and feeling like a family. And I think that's a privilege that I have because that's how lucky am I. Hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No, I really like what you were saying, Jess, is really important about that whole thing of trying to – this whole conversation has come back to community building every mm. time. You know, that whole thing of how do we curb – that consumer culture is by building community, Mm. you know, and building communities in the businesses that are providing us with product Mm. and building community in terms of coming together to support local businesses and to support those who are trying to make an effort to be more environmentally conscious and Mm. more ethical in their practices and paying their employees a fair wage and all Mm. that kind of thing, which is, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Can't really think of a better word. That's, that's cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The next thing is, because we kind mm. of focus around three questions, mm. as I, given that it's unlikely that the three of us sitting in this room are going to change, the four of us, sorry, Fran, <laughs> that the four of us in this room are going to change the way that large fashion companies run their businesses Mm. what are some of the things we can do now to try and stay away from consumer culture well the bad parts of consumer culture and support the local businesses like Nisa Mm. and like what we can do at the moment to cope with the fact that there is a lot of unethical practice going on Mm. and that fast fashion is so pervasive that we often don't have a lot of other choice because there's not a lot of people out there doing what you're trying to do Mm. I guess the first answer is quite a political one, which is that your vote counts more than your dollar. So go out to vote in local elections. I know they're horribly unsexy, but they make a huge difference (laughs) and are probably more impactful than national elections. Making a difference is sexy. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, there's how you politically engaged you are. That makes a big difference. And then, of course, there's how you spend your money. And... I would like to think that 
we all have the ability to make small choices differently. And so for some people who have quite a large budget, maybe they could go entirely eco-friendly, entirely ethical, but everyone can divert just one small purchase. Everyone can do just a small thing differently. And if we took that mindset, maybe the world would be a different place. Maybe for one person that's buying someone a special gift that was made in a way that they feel really proud of, or maybe it's just your underwear or something small. It doesn't have to be everything. I think people have this idea that, you know, you have to be this purist. You can't claim to live by your beliefs if it's not completely consistent. Mm. And that's bullshit. You know, like Mm. we're so afraid of being called hypocrites that we just don't say what our values are and we don't try and live by them because you're like, oh, I I could never afford to do that with everything I do. I'm not entirely vegetarian, so how can I talk about vegetarianism? And I think... That fear of hypocrisy really holds us back. I think we should just be proud about doing what we can. What we can, oh, yeah, exactly. yeah, and and not taking that purest attitude, mm. and not being mean to people if they don't take that purest yeah. attitude as well. Exactly. I mean, that purest attitude is very much set in privilege. Mm. We don't. We live in a country where not everybody can afford to be that mm. yeah. you know that pure about it, mm. and there are people who do what they can but can't go vegan or can't you know go completely off the grid or can't you know that kind of thing and so something that I think about a lot is Mm. the gentrification of up shopping and things like that you know Mm. really thinking about how you're maybe trying to do something right Mm. isn't necessarily doing something right because Mm. by normalizing that up shop mindset we've made a lot of clothes that were necessary for a lot of people quite inaccessible so it's mm. like you said that purist attitude can be quite mm. damaging and it holds us back and mm, it can also yeah. really negatively impact other people so mm. yeah I guess because the default lifestyle obviously is to be the rational consumer and mm. so you're always acting in your self-interest and so mm. that means to buy sometimes the most cheapest thing mm. and then in between that you've got what feels like a huge abyss and then mm. you've got the purest yeah. sort of thing and to sort of climb the uphill battle from one lens you can say it's hypocrisy but from another you can say you're just trying to escape the default mm. and what we're all conditioned subconsciously to do everyone's either a hypocrite mm. or they're not trying mm. and so better to be a hypocrite yeah, totally <laughs> yeah Everyone's rendered guilty under the system somehow. Yeah, we're all complicit, but we all have like the keys for change ourselves and within our communities. I like to think. I was part of a really interesting meeting the other day. It was about climate justice through a racial lens. And it was saying about how the solutions aren't like anger or despair. It's coming at things from a perspective of love and healing. When you start looking at things from that lens, I think the conversations you have change and what upsets you changes because you don't see any one person in the system as bad or evil you start looking at everyone with compassion Mm. and you try and imagine a system that we could all be happier in yeah i really love that sentiment Mm. i completely agree as i talk about this quite a lot with a friend in particular and how a lot of social justice feels motivated by anger Mm. and a lot of that is sort of why is this say person who's Mm. really wealthy jeff Mm. bezos for example Mm. we're always bagging on jeff bezos Mm. and we're saying why does he act this way why does he act Mm. this way i think for individuals sometimes you just have to accept that you can't change people and activism needs to come from a place of love for the people Mm. who are affected most and so Mm. sometimes we should refocus that energy and think well what can we do proactively mm. with for the people who we're talking about rather than sort of getting angry on their behalf. Yeah, totally. I think it's so easy to write negative comments on social media and it's so hard to actually make the world a better place. And <laughs> and so uh, and sometimes I think people find that one is like a replacement for the other. Yeah, I really encourage everyone to try to think about their local communities and what they can do to enrich life within that space because it's so much um I guess another theory I have is that I imagine that at the end of my days I will have affected maybe 10 people's lives very deeply and that is enough for me you know and that's something that I think if all of us thought like that we'd be like oh I could probably really change how my mum thinks about this or maybe I'm going to use the savings that I had for this holiday to help my friend do something that she was really passionate about, that she mm. could never have afforded without that. You know, if we think about impact on this deeper level with the people around us, that's a huge point of mm-hmm. leverage that we all have. 
And the cool thing is about it is that it also deepens your own relationships. So yeah, there's this impact at this kind of global scale, but there's also people around us. Definitely. Mm. So we've got our local scope and we've got our global scope. Mm. And our local scope, it's much more tangible to see mm. and also much more achievable mm. to help people as well. Mm. And then when it comes to the global scale, because our local obviously mm. is very privileged on yeah. a global scale. So mm-hmm. how do we reach people in the other end of production, for example? Yeah. I wish I had the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was very big. <laughs> This is where consumers of the big brands actually have quite a good voice, <laughs> you know, because they can be like, oh, I bought this collection rather than this collection because it's the considered collection. And I hope that those things do actually make a difference. But I don't – there's always the question of whether whether activism within a system or from the outside makes the biggest difference, and I couldn't Absolutely. I couldn't yeah. really answer that question. I guess you, you need both, right? You mm. need people, you need the person from H&M who's the head of sustainability to really be really passionate about that and you also need the Greenpeace activist who wants to bring it all down to be passionate about that. <laughs> you need like yeah. um, everyone everyone has their role to play and for some people that will look much more like inside the system yeah. and for some mm. people that will look much more outside the system but they're both good, you know? I, um, that. I really love that. Yeah, mm. I totally agree. Everyone also has their own like personal thoughts on risk and income and all of these kind of mm. things. So it's different for everyone. But yeah, I do think that everyone has their role to play and everyone can make a mm. difference. Yeah, I mm. like what you said about I chose to buy this collection over the other one because it was mm. considered that's mm. the whole concept of voting with your dollar and mm. saying that yeah. I am a consumer. Mm. I need to consume a mm. certain base level mm. of things. Mm. Therefore, I'm going to allocate my money to the things and show people through that, Yeah, which is really powerful and mm. like you said I'd also love to hope it makes a difference <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly I think this is where actually shopping at small brands can make a huge difference because because makers or like people in small businesses every single sale is something to be excited about mm. so if you want to make someone's day shop with someone in a small shop you know like that's really cool and yeah you can make change that way there's so many levers and it's yeah. the cool thing about that is that everyone has their own passions and things that they really believe in and lean into that you know <laughs> i agree mm. yeah definitely with what you said about how everyone has their role to play so if you're not a h&m up there person yeah. or if you're not a greenpeace activist mm. as well i think mm. social media has actually quite a big role these days in letting ordinary quotation mm. marks people to put their stance on social media and they can go viral mm. or like there's the way that on social media you've got a lot of advertising b- mm. bombarding you but at the same time you can also fill it with dissent or like people mm. who are endorsing considered collections for example and mm. in that way people can also mobilize yeah social media has become a political voice that's true one thing i do worry about I haven't got my thoughts on this totally sorted yet but um i read a really interesting article that was saying that was arguing that Social media ecosystems mean that you just talk with really people who have exactly the same views as you. And then what happens is that you then you feel like everyone has those views because you're like, there are millions of us. (laughs) And it's true that there are millions of you, but you're all over the world and you're all completely disconnected in any kind of like physical sense. And so people feel incredibly righteous because they're in this community of people that agree exactly with them. And as soon as someone kind of disagrees slightly, they're like booted out and Mm -hmm. you get this kind of rise of extremism within that on all fields Mm. because you've got this idea of purity as well and it's really all of these ideological spheres are are policed by the crowds and so it's got these amazing positive impacts because voices that used to be ignored now there's enough of them together in one place that they can't be ignored anymore but also there's quite the downside with that as well and that people can become more and yeah i guess that rise of extremism and I think that's very much embedded by those same online spaces. Oh, so it's so complex. It makes my head hurt when I think <laughs> yeah. about it. Because yeah. then you've also got the role of the people who own the platforms mm. and how they're shaping that too. And yeah. Um, and they do shape it. Mm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, with the way that social media is at the moment, 
there's so little room for niche, mm. you know, like there's always people who have the same view as you and mm. that's great because you feel like you're in a community but it's also dangerous <laughs> because you're like... like, I am right yeah. and everyone agrees with me. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it's interesting what you said about people being spread out over the world. People don't even really think about that. They're mm. like, oh, yeah, there's this group and this group. <laughs> and then it's like, no, but that person's in this country. Like, <laughs> there's like three of you in your city. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, just super interesting to think mm. about. Um, what you were saying, Jess, about the people behind these platforms, mm. you know, they've got the algorithm them set up so it's showing you what you want so it's like you're not breaking that chain of thought Mm. you're not getting the other opinion or the other side or seeing what's behind the person who thinks the opposite to you you know yeah yeah there's this, interesting. there's this great video, it was like a meme, and it was like what people are like on the internet, and it had two dogs looking at each other, and there was an automated gate that would come up and close in front of them, and then open, and then close again, and as the gate closed, they'd be like, <laughs> and like go nuts at each other, and then the gate would slide open, and they'd just like look at each other and look at each other, and like the thing was like people on the internet, like <laughs> yeah. when you're like, you know, when there's a when there's that, that kind of interface between yeah. you, people go nuts, but like if they were to meet in person, they'd be like, hey, Trey. Hey, (laughs) like people, it's so undignified, you know, the way that people behave. We've pitted against each other. Yeah. But but if if this was like a face-to-face environment, it just... I'd like to think that people would not behave in yeah. that way. <laughs> there's the thing when you put the internet in the way, well, obviously there's anger and politics mm. in person as well. Mm. There's heaps of it. There's a lot of horrible mm. things going on. But in terms of the internet, people can hide behind it and can mm. can be so angry and can, you know, do the whole, you're cancelled and blah, and like mm. yell, at thing, yell at people for this, this and this. But... Yeah, it's it's all about would they act that way if they were having a conversation in person? Would they have the confidence to speak up and say, hey, actually, no, you know, and have the actual meaningful conversation mm. saying, try and educate people rather than yelling at them or almost aggressively doing it, you know? Mm. I think there's a really important balance, though, because social media has given people who don't have the safety to talk Mm. about these kind of things in person you know what I mean a lot of the conversations that are happening on social media are ones that often can't happen in person because Mm. there are so many dangers to physical Mm. safety emotional Mm. safety or that kind of thing and there's so much trauma and as much as like you do get into an echo chamber Mm. it's also a way of generational healing and as much as you'd like to think that you wouldn't yell at someone in person some people (laughs) you know like and which is so true but Mm. you know some of those conversations they just have to be had and if no one's having them in person they have to be had online and yeah yeah, like I just I don't know I just think that like it's a it's like a privilege to think that you can have that conversation in person and be level-headed about it when for some people you know it's so it's becomes it's such like it's a matter of life or death and so like I think anger in that stance is very justified you know so there's like it's that line for cancel culture and like I, I completely agree I completely agree and I think that's why like as there is with a lot of things there's so many pros and cons to the internet and social media because obviously it's doing a lot for activism Mm. but it's also it is creating at times this echo chamber because you've got the people on the outside that don't connect with it Mm. you know Mm. but all we can do is just watch and keep going for what you believe in, I guess. <laughs> and I guess not losing sight, I think our world is being reshaped by it, but not losing sight of why we all do it, which is that we love other humans. We're like, yeah. we want to connect, and that's why it feels so bloody good, you know? Mm. And we want to know what our friends and family are up to. We want to see that cute new cardigan. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of, like, the, the heart of it, I think, is our desire for connection with people, and that's a beautiful thing. So let's just have some more of that. <laughs> this is literally just, comes back to what we talk about this all the yeah. time about collectivism. We yeah. talk about, you know, community and coming together mm. and people power and like it's yeah. just yeah. I was just gonna say I'm just aware we've slightly devolved from the topic, we but have, then you yeah. just linked it back to collectivism. <laughs> so yeah, because when we're talking about consumer culture, we're talking about the way we live our lives. And mm. so obviously conversations about echo chambers and the internet mm. are gonna factor in because mm. all of it affects each other. Your viewpoint on how social media can be about wanting to connect with other people Mm. because we love humans is very optimistic. I guess from my own personal perspective, Nisa as a brand has been very much shaped around social media because it gives us this amazing platform to talk directly with people. Like we would have been so different if we were having to sell through other retailers 
So it's created this entirely new way of doing business as well. And it's this like unmitigated filter between companies and their consumers. And so suddenly if Nestle does something you don't like, you can talk to Nestle. Mm, <laughs> you know? the need for a middleman. Yeah. It's now just the genuine, like we make transactions all the time mm. and the transaction used to kind of go down that supply chain, but now mm. we can be directly linked to the supplier yeah. as a consumer. Exactly. So it's really like personalized that relationship a little bit more. Yeah. And which I think is it's really powerful. Like yeah. it means you're people asking the questions, you know, how was this made? And then also people can really enjoy interactions with the brands that are doing things that they love, mm-hmm. you know, that brands aren't people, but they're made up of lots of people. So. Yeah. No, and mm. it also comes back to what you were saying about how when you're online and you've got mm. all these people agreeing with, mm. you know, the same thing, that can be really powerful when you've got that relationship between suppliers and consumers because mm. then the consumers are able to say, look, there's the other 100 million people yeah. behind me and we all think that this totally. thing is cool, you know? Yeah. Totally. So, like, it is... We see like it's that collectivism coming mm. through and that's how we can reshape this consumer culture into something that isn't about fast fashion and isn't about, you know, unethical practice. Mm. And we can kind of reform and reshape the way that we see particularly like the fashion mm. industry. Yeah. I think what we've come to through this conversation is, you know, nothing is ever purely good or purely bad. Like the world is a complicated place, but all we have is each other and like our fundamental desire to do good by each other. And so, like, just letting that lead the way on a daily basis, I think, is is what I live for and I think many other people do as well. So. Well, you've just perfectly mm. answered yeah. our last yeah. question. Yeah. 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 Just, yeah, how do we cope with the yeah. fact that we can't really necessarily change it individually? Mm. We and need to like focus even, on loving each other. Yeah, mm. exactly. And even if, like, if we were to write a list of demands right now, if we put them into practice, like, I'm sure half of them would make the world the most miserable place. You know, we pretend like we have the answers, but we have no idea because we live in the most complicated world. So, you know, all we have is what we know and the people around us. And, like, I guess... The good, right intent. I think that is mm. also important. Mm. Um, yeah. And all you can do is like kind of go forward from there. Yeah. yeah. And we also have what we were talking about earlier to different degrees, varying to person to person, and how much privilege someone has or doesn't have. But we have the free will to decide what we're going to do. Yeah. Obviously, within the constraints of having to go to work yeah. and having to come to university and having, you know, paying rent mm. and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, in our free time, we do have some elements of choice mm, and some yeah. people have less, but it should be therefore about using the elements of choice that someone with more privilege might have to therefore mm. enable others to have that same yeah. kind of privilege mm. of choice. Yeah, It's about what you said earlier about that not losing sight in every choice that you do have, making sure you're choosing according to what you value. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. And your values will change through time. There's nothing wrong with that, you yeah, know? For sure. Yeah. They're growing and changing every day. Mm. <laughs> Sure. It's quite cool because, like, Jess and I, particularly, we're, we're obviously young. Mm. I've just turned 21, and Jess is, how old are you? 19. She's mm. such a baby. <laughs> you know, like, we're very, mm. we're young and a little bit disillusioned. Mm. And so it's really nice to hear kind of a more idealistic, well, not even idealistic, yeah. just a more optimistic perspective on the fact that there is actually stuff that we can do, you know? Like, the reason we started this podcast is we kind of went, like, well, what do we do? Like, yeah, this sucks. Exactly. And so, like, it's really nice to have yeah. someone come on and be like, well, actually, I've thought about this for a long time and here's where I'm at. (laughs) Reflecting back onto myself as like a university student, when you're at university, things seem very ideological. Because you learn all these new concepts. The world is like A and B. And I don't (laughs) like B, so I'm A. And all of these big things are forming in your mind and you're like, oh, it's just all so terrible. But I think as you kind of get into your first job after uni and you start exploring the world, things become more grey, but that's sometimes nice. That provides some comfort as well. It's not all as bad as it seemed, but maybe it could be better as well, (laughs) you know? And so I think, yeah, university is a particular place where that mindset is really prevalent. It all just seems quite overwhelming and big, but... Yeah, we're absolutely in the midst of our political socialisation. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's like the second coming of age. (laughs) Totally, but then you'll go to some political meetings and be like, God, Sharon's miserable. (laughs) Okay. I'll look forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. The sense of humour is actually probably the best tool we have because, Mm. God, like it's... Otherwise, it gets really grim and just horrible. So just keeping it light, you know. Yeah. Watching silly comedies, throwing in a joke every now and again, even on serious topics is good. Yeah. Um, I feel like we started out talking about 
consumer culture yeah. in a narrow way and we've ended up talking about the way we live our lives yeah. and what sort of values we should have <laughs> but that and is, this but form of citizenship we should have mm. but that's the thing is exactly. that consumer culture is about citizenship and it consumer is. culture is about our everyday everything we do every day we're consuming we go to the supermarket we make consumption decisions mm, we go yeah. buy our clothes we make consumption decisions even when you're you know choosing your houses mm, still goods yeah. and products and everything sure. coming through so like as much as it is a conversation mm. that you can have on a more micro level about mm. fashion and about mm ethical fashion it is also mm. like a conversation that you have about our lives and about mm. our everyday and yeah. our approaches to life and yeah. our choices and everything yeah i'd really recommend everyone watch the documentary the true cost so it's about fashion and fast fashion and one thing that really stuck with me from that documentary was someone saying that the big things in life like education and in particular housing has become so unaffordable that people are just forced to buy the cheapest things they can in every other area. We're talking about these really small things. You know, mm. what brand of toothpaste do you buy? Imagine what would happen if housing was more affordable. This is, Imagine yeah, what would happen if education exactly. was more accessible. Yeah. Suddenly everyone wouldn't have to be fighting over these the small yeah. things because the big things would be in place for them. Mm. And so don't allow yourselves to be distracted. You know, the big fight is... Also yeah. happening elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, this is what we talk about. I think I've mentioned it every time we've come in this room. About mm. choosing eggs. Like, mm. it's the same thing, you know? Like, you make them. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like yeah. a broken record, but yeah. it's like, you said you look at the eggs and you know that mm. the farm ones are not great, mm. but you buy them anyway because mm. they're cheap and you have mm. to pay rent, you know? Mm. So it's like, and that's kind of where I think Jess and I are coming from when we say that we're disillusioned. We're disillusioned mm. by the fact that our education is expensive and mm. colonial and then our housing is unaffordable mm. and not healthy. Yeah, and, so then, and then it comes yeah. around to making these consumption decisions mm. and it's really mm. hard to know what to do there because like you said there is no black and white it's mm. all so grey yeah. and we're influenced by the way we live our lives in every yeah. other aspect and I also think as we will finish uni one day and then <laughs> one day so far off and then we will sort of enter that grey area that mm. you were talking about like moving into our first jobs and everything mm. at the same time that's happening and we've got our own scope on our everyday lives I think it's also important that we don't also forget what we've learned in uni about mm. the big macroscope mm. and how at the at the end of our decisions you've got this hegemony of exploitation going on and also making sure what's within our own capacity in terms of just mental energy mm. <laughs> when we think about these things and advocate for something better. Mm. To everyone who's listening, go down to Willis Street, 99 Willis Street. Give Nisa a look. If you need some new underwear, you know where to go <laughs> for yes. some amazing ethical and sustainable underwear and activewear soon mm. and swimwear when it comes to summer. Yeah, very swimming. exciting. But yeah, no, a massive thank you for coming on. Oh, it's just been amazing. Yeah. yeah, I've learned heaps. Me I know too. I've gained so much insight. So oh. refreshing and inspiring. Yeah, that's great. And now, like, um, blurb for the podcast when we first started, we were mm. saying we don't have any answers, but hopefully some guests do and here you are with yeah. some answers so <laughs> yeah. Great. yeah it's really cool thank you so much thank no you for worries. Your no <laughs> worries all right we'll see you guys soon thanks